Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have James J. Phelan. He's a postdoctoral research fellow at Trinity College Dublin. We're going to talk about uh, you know, various topics, tuberculosis, infectious disease, and uh, cellular metabolism. So, James, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. Well, tell me about your research. What What are you working on? Well, it's it's very uh, it's very I suppose expanse in the in terms of what I do. I suppose my expertise would be in cellular metabolism, really. And I would have started out doing and exploring cellular metabolism in um, I suppose the early part of my career in the context of cancer, specifically esophageal cancer, and while looking at esophageal cancer, one of the main risk factors for looking at esophageal cancer is um, a condition called Barrett's esophagus, which is effectively uh, a distortion or a distortion of the of the cells there. And this is the biggest risk factor for esophageal cancer. Um, and I was studying different uh, parameters, particularly cellular metabolism and how cellular metabolism changes and it makes individuals more susceptible to actually develop an esophageal cancer. You said the number one predictor uh, or precursor for esophageal cancer is what? You gave some acronym. Yeah, so it's it's called Barrett's esophagus or uh, intestinal metaplasia. So it's an inflammatory condition. So I suppose um, another way to put it is if if you can imagine someone has a hot drink um, and you get and it's you know you burn yourself if you like. This could be potentially lead to in the short term at least to esophagitis. And over time, people might have issues with um, their their stomach, and they might get reflux from their stomach. Um, and these cells at the distal part or the bottom part of their esophagus gets chronically exposed to bile salts from the acidic stomach. And over time, these normal cells will differentiate and actually change into different cellular phenotypes, um, one of them being Barrett's esophagus. And then over time, this condition called Barrett's esophagus, if exposed to subsequent insults and stress, will actually turn into um, dysplasia, which is a kind of, it's even closer to cancer again. And then again, over a longer period of time, again, this can actually transform into, into cancer. And sometimes this actually, so it, it is a progression. It's a sequence of events from Barts to low grade, high grade, and then finally to adenocarcinoma or, can, or subject cancer. And I suppose what I was doing is I was characterizing cellular metabolism along this, along this um, sequence. And I did this for about four years and this resulted me into, um, I subsequently followed this up in, um, into infectious diseases. So I moved from a cancer field into an infectious disease field. But also at the same time, I also jumped into looking at immunology. And um, in, in a, it was actually a contrasting role because I suppose in the cancer field, as you know, various cancer patients are burdened with high inflammation. And the, the goal with 
therapeutics especially would, would be to reduce the inflammation associated with these diseases. Um, and particularly with the likes of tuberculosis, which is um, one of my specialities. It's um, TB, TB, particularly late stage TB, it's characterized by, by a huge inflammatory burden, similar like what's been reported with COVID-19 at the moment. Well, so there's a, there's a lot to talk about. The four years you spent characterizing the metabolic changes, can we talk about that first? You know, what happened throughout all these stages of uh, progression to esophageal cancer? What did you notice? Well, I noticed... Um, what we what we did is because about over a decade ago, not many people were actually studying what we term as the as the field calls it cellular metabolism. Um, and I suppose it's hard to actually pinpoint and define cellular metabolism. But the best way to put it is that I suppose if you can think of various um, vehicles, if you like, on the road, they all have all these different cars on the road. You might have a car an ambulance, you might have a truck, a lorry, you'll have a digger. You have different vehicles will have different functions. Um, and that's like an immune cell or, or a cell in the body anywhere. But what thing, the thing that actually connects all these and what's the most common um, part of them is the way they metabolize their, their glucose, i.e. their cellular metabolism. And I suppose if you like to make things a smaller, a little bit more complex, is that if you have particular cells that have two metabolic pathways, look at it as a hybrid car. And what I was doing was I was actually characterizing the different types of metabolism or what and how much um, these cells use particular types of metabolism. So, for example, I found that as uh, one uh, as patients progress from Barrett's metaplasia or this inflammatory inflammatory esophageal condition to cancer, they they used um, this aggressive form of metabolism called glycolysis more. Um, so they did. And glycolysis, this metabolic pathway called glycolysis, is actually associated with higher in, higher flux of cytokines and chemokines, and which is damaging to the tissue and obviously to, to the patient then. And that is our, our, our main finding. The main way that cells process versus what oxidative phosphorylation, phosphorylation. Yes. And glycolysis is, a, is a, usually a cancer-specific form of metabolism. Exactly, yeah, absolutely got a spot on Richard. Yeah. What, what's um, the, um, well, just quickly, what's the trade offs of the two methods? Why do you think cells switch? Well, the, the best thing about glycolysis is that you, the cancers need energy. They need energy to grow, to differentiate as fast as possible. And glycolysis and switching to glycolysis turned the Warburg effect, this fancy term used to actually define it switching from oxidative phosphorylation to the other metabolic pathway. The glycolysis it does this because glycolysis is a lot more uh it's a lot more was efficient and i won't say efficient it's much faster to produce uh, energy metabolic uh, or cellular energy than oxidative phosphorylation even though oxidative phosphorylation is a lot more efficient at doing doing so it um glycolysis um does it much much faster and i suppose one of the you might have heard it in the news, your listeners might have heard it in the news uh, about uh, this so-called ketogenic diets, particularly for cancer patients as a potential um, adjuvant therapy, not as a preventative treatment or even a cure, but just as a means to actually help uh, the burden in certain patients. So what these ketogenic diets are based on are um, they bypass glycolysis. So they're given ketone bodies um, and then 
these ketone bodies are um, they literally bypass glycolysis and instead go straight into the oxidative metabolism, and therefore they can't. Uh, the cancers can't actually use um, these ketone bodies. So you're effectively starving your tumor of um, these intermediates that are generally produced from glycolysis, effectively. Um, which is which, um, and like even, even a decade ago. Um, these uh, ketogenic diets were, were proposed as a potential adjuvant therapy into this day, and they still are. Have they been found to be effective first before you describe them? They are found effective. They are found effective, but they're never implemented. Um, and they're really only going to be implemented, in my opinion, um, as an adjuvant therapy. You know, they do help, um, but they're not curative, if you know what I mean. They're not prophylactic. They don't prevent oh, disease. Yeah. Are there people that faithfully do? Do them and how much of an effect do they get or they only do them in combination with other um, activities it's generally in combination with other acti- other with other compounds other chemotherapeutics and that sort of thing yeah um, what's the observation how helpful are they they help they generally and sadly they're used at late in late stage as well for patients those patients who are very uncomfortable, they're used then as well to do there's been reports that patients have found it to, to feel better to feel better with using this. But I suppose more significantly, this work that I was doing was, um, I actually, I would have finished that about five, going on six years ago now. And since then, I've been using that and I've been applying what I've known with cellular metabolism in the context of um, infectious diseases. And in that model, and TB, um, I think you you talked to uh, one of my colleagues a few months ago, um, and about TV and and what our work kind of does, but what our um, our lab is, um, we looked at infecting macrophages, um, and we look at infecting macrophages. Macrophages run immune cells of the body, as you know, and they're um, the first line of defense during a TB infection. So if an individual gets infected with TB, the macrophage tries to cure the infection. The macrophage. Um, immediately increases its glycolysis or its its rate of glycolysis to help get rid of infection because if we come along and we inhibit glycolysis in that macrophage the tb overwhelms the macrophage so it does um, so what we've been doing in our lab um is is unique in a way because uh, various research institutes globally what they do and they've described it as um late stage tb is characterized by this inflammatory burden and you don't really want to increase glycolysis in these particular patients because if you do, then you're going to get higher levels of inflammation, which is a no-no. But we hypothesize in our lab that if you can turn on glycolysis during the early stages of infection, you could potentially actually switch on glycolysis and therefore help eradicate the infection. And this is the kind of work that we do at the moment. So it's turning what I did during my, my PhD in, and in the cancer field on its head, really, where in the cancer, you don't want to switch on glycolysis, whereas during the early stages of TB, you, you kind of do. We actually found, and, and my research actually recently, it was recently published this year, actually um, using the, what we did was we found that um, an iron binder, something called desferioxamine, which is currently used in the, in the clinic as an iron chelator. And it's actually currently in clinical trials for uh, COVID-19 as well. But um, what we found is this, um, compound can switch on glycolysis is in macrophages infected with TB um, and can actually help clear the infection as well. 
But um, effectively, we're in the middle of actually looking to see if DFX and this iron binder can actually help in combination with current antibiotics that are used to treat TB as well. We showed that uh, by simply using this compound, you can switch on glycolysis. You can up the levels of various different cytokines as well. So these cytokines, even though they might be pro-inflammatory um, and they might be harmful in late stage TB, they're actually, we know that they're actually protective and they actually help um, kill TB in those early stages of infection. So they are, which is uh, which was surprising. Um, even before I started uh, in the infectious disease um, field, I, I would never have thought that. So, and that's only what, five, five, six years ago now. Um, so that's probably one of the kind of surprising elements to, to that, my, my research in the early days, at least anyway. Is there another way for respiration to happen besides uh, oxfos and glycolysis or is it only those two that that you know that's understood yeah good question there are other metabolic pathways for sure there are definitely other metabolic pathways and i, I think even though people have been looking at metabolism for 10 odd years we've we've only really scraped the surface of what they really do um i think most people at the moment are looking at oxidative phosphorylation glycolysis. There are others, there's lipid metabolism. People are starting to look at lipid metabolism now. Other people are looking at other pathways that jut off glycolysis, such as the pentose phosphate pathway. And there are even certain amino acid pathways as well, tryptophan pathways, glutamine pathways, um, that people are starting to investigate. Um, because, for example, glutamine or downstream from glutamine and you can get uh, the production of uh, intermediate called succinate. And one of our professors in our university are, are doing, is doing great work with succinate um, and itaconate, um, which, we've, which they've shown and others have shown to be um, pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory respectively. Um, so them alone, so it, and it's, it's very surprising because even uh, 10 years ago to think that a cellular uh, inter, uh, intermediate such as itaconate or succinate could actually exhibit um, anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory effects respectively. It's, it's awesome because this could pave the way for potential, just firstly for, for understanding how the cell works, but also for therapies. For example, itaconate, which is, is shown to be anti-inflammatory, you can put that on a, on a macrophage or an immune cell, you could actually help it um, reduce its inflammation. Again, potentially in those patients who, who do, don't or to have unwanted levels or high levels of um, cytokines flux in that, you know? So it's only at certain points you'd want to intervene and lower the inflammation, right? Exactly. Or do you want to chronically lower it? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You, you do at a certain point. Yeah, I think that the key is a balance. I think the early stages, you, you need a... a you need a kind of a, a certain flavor of macrophage, if you like, that has a balance between promoting these pathways, but also dampening them down. I, I would I would argue myself, come, maybe from coming from a cancer background, you want to switch these off late, late stage. You want to get out your anti-inflammatories or your anti-metabolics even, and you want to um, switch off these pathways. But it's very difficult because cancers and, and cancer cells and normal cells, they both have oxidative phosphorylation and glycolytic metabolic pathways um, working concurrently. And it's very hard to target these specifically because um, various different compounds, um, they don't specifically bind to the ketone bodies now, for example, as we mentioned, for example, that is actually good because 
normal cells don't really use ketone bodies. Um, so because they have their metabolic uh, machinery intact, so it's the it's the cancer cells that uh, have no choice but to uh, you know to not they won't be able to, to use glycolysis. Them, you know? um, cancer cells generally yeah, use glycolysis, yeah. But they have to. They do. do can, you said before that do cancer cells use oxfos or they only use glycolysis. Or is it not so clear cut? You, the, yeah, like so. I think most cells, if not all cells, will use both pathways. But glycolysis is um, commonly associated with cancer cells. Um, there will be a baseline levels of oxidative phosphorylation, absolutely. Yeah. And so it sounds like as you progress towards cancer, at least esophageal, there's um, a recurring persistent inflammation. Yeah. So it's good to reduce it at that point, and then in late stage cancer. There's a reoccurrence of it now in a nasty form and cytokines, et cetera, that kills the person. So there you yeah. want to suppress it. So those, yeah. are the, those are the two points that you want to intervene. Absolutely, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And trying to determine that switch point, that, you know, the, the, that seesaw moment where it flips from one to the next, it's very difficult. It's very, it, it's very, very hard to determine that, that um, juncture, if you know what I mean. Um, but, you know, you've got to spot on exactly. So what... Um... So th- all this has translated into infectious diseases. So let's talk about that. Like in the context of TB, what happens to someone? How does, it de- de- how does the disease progress? And then when does the inflammation component come in? Well, it's, it's mainly, well, you have early infection. So individuals who get infected can either clear it. They can either, um, it can become, they can kind of clear it and retain it and they become latent, the infected, or they can go on to progress to active TB disease. Uh, latent infection can be associated with granulomas in the lungs, but also uh, active TB disease. Um, you'll have granulomas, you'll have cavities, you'll have um, an influx of immune cells that are spewing out cytokines uh, and chemokines. It's taught that individuals who are immunocompromised, while the immune system is intact, it's keeping down and keeping TB under control. But individuals um, who are immunocompromised, they no longer can actually dampen down the, the TB onslaught, if you like. So it, it, it reacts, if you like. So, and that would be the case in individuals who have latent TB, for example. Um, but the exact triggers, that's still undetermined. Oh, have you looked at other cancers, for instance, other infectious diseases like um I would think inflammation is probably common to many, many diseases, many, many uh, cancers as well. Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose I've been, even during um, my research, I've been collaborating with various different um, PIs across the college um, here and abroad. And we've, uh, I've looked at, in terms of the cancers, we've looked at uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, we've looked at, um, we've also looked at rheumatoid arthritis, which is an inflammatory disease. Of the of the obviously of the knee joints, and it's very much cancer again. That inflammatory burden is all mediated by glycolysis. Again, you inhibit glycolysis, you don't have this cytokine influx. Um, so, for example, one of the key cytokines um, across most cancer types um, and infectious diseases, um, particularly in a, in a context of a macrophage model, would be a cytokine called IL-1 beta. So, if you actually inhibit glycolysis during an infection or a, 
or in a tissue, you'll get lower levels of iron beta telling you that metabolism is intrinsically linked to the production of these cytokines. And this seems to be the case from, from cell model to cell model in most cases um, across different disease entities. Um, so it is quite translation uh, translatable across these models. And I think in some ways the cancer field has been ahead of their ahead of the game with this. Um, and in some ways, as a result, then now that I'm in infectious diseases, I'm, I'm learning a lot from other people um, and the great work that everyone is doing on this. Um, so we're able to kind of uh, ask different questions, build on their work and ask different questions. Uh, because as I said, it, this area is only now being really understood. I mentioned succinate and itaconate and how they can affect um, pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory profiles. Um, but there are hundreds and thousands of intermediates out there that people have to look at, again, in different contexts, in different infectious disease models as well. Um, or um, we, um, even our lab in the next, in the next uh, definitely our university and institute will be looking at COVID-19 in, in the next few months and uh, years probably now. Um, and these are, def these are certainly important questions to ask in, in the context of that too. Um, and I've no doubt they will be asked. Um, not, not only by us, though, um, but by, uh, by various um, institutes globally, you know. Going back to cancer, why do the cells use like glycolysis versus oxfos? I thought it was partially because the mitochondria are damaged and the cell can only primarily do it that way. Or yeah, is, it, that's it just a, yeah. is it a preference instead of choice? Yeah, that's exactly, that's one of the reasons as well, um, because the mitochondria have an inefficient DNA repair capacity system. So if their mitochondrial DNA gets damaged, they can't repair it. And as a result, then they have to switch to glycolysis. But in my opinion, looking at this for so long, the main reason to switch is because they're just greedy. They want more energy and glycolysis just will make them a lot more energy, a lot faster, in my opinion. And you never know, particularly there's like a certain research now I was looking into the fact that, for example, TB can actually manipulate and damage the mitochondria in order to get cells to switch to glycolysis, particularly um, in the chronic stages of TB, because it, uh, it can actually induce this higher glycolytic um, metabolism um, and therefore it'll damage, it'll do, induce more damage, you know. Well, there's got to be trade-offs, otherwise cells would just do it all the time. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So glycolysis enables, um, you know, production of energy faster, but there has to be a trade-off. There's something it doesn't do as well, I'm sure. Otherwise, it would be the preferred method of respiration. Yes, it's, it, that's an excellent question. The thing is, it doesn't really, like you have a buildup of lactate. So I think you have huge waste. So you have um, the likes of, for example, the best way is when, when people exercise and you get a buildup of lactate. So there's huge waste products, and um, one of the one of the things that we think that um, people are trying to do or hypothesize at the moment is that what the byproducts such as lactate, which is the end stage of glycolysis, lactate is being uh, converted to certain um, um, pro-inflammatory markers, so intermediates that subsequently can actually promote further disease progression. So. What's happening is, um, and, in the con and in the context of TB, we think lactate is actually potentially feeding back in the system and actually helping to promote different other, other cellular processes, such as autophagy, uh, which is actually, it, it effectively um, engulfs TB 
and, and, and kills it. Um, but um, trade-offs are very, and I mentioned it was a good question because it's very, very, uh, it's only starting to actually, people are only starting to ask that question. Um, and one of the kind of main things that our lab is, is looking at is lactate and particularly it's, its role. It's not very known at the moment, but to think it's, it, it's mainly down to their just need for, for getting sugars and getting um, more energy at the moment anyway. Okay. So what's the next step? What uh, are you looking forward to now in the research? What are you trying to figure out? Were you switching to COVID or, you know, what's, I mean, it sounds like there's a ton um, left to figure out. So what's well, I suppose like, uh, I won't be personally won't be switching to COVID, but I know that the kind of next part of the research is because a lot has been learned in that. In, in, we found out a lot in the last 10 years, I suppose. Um, and we've only really scratched the surface. And I think, um, one of the big things, I suppose, at the moment is this topic as well. Uh, a very talented colleague of mine is, is looking at innate training um, and the role of metabolism in potentially helping innate cells, such as a macrophage, um, to actually expose them to an insult or a pathogen. So when they get obviously infected, if they get infected next time, that they're better capable of actually responding to that infection um, the following time, which has could have potentially huge benefits down, benefits down the line for also for the, the likes of host-directed therapies and vaccination strategies as well. Um, because I, I mean, we mentioned metabolism, but metabolism, various intermediates, um, such as, as I said, I mentioned succinate already and citrate or itaconate, uh, but they're um, all alter host epigenetics, which is massive in terms of vaccination strategies and also in terms of post-directed therapies and it's known um, that um, these can actually alter other transcription factors such as um, HIF1 alpha which is uh, the, the main metabolic switch for switching on glycolysis um, so it that in itself would have a huge ramifications especially for innate training for example you know okay well very good What's the best way for people to find out more about your research and keep tabs? If you go to our website, tcd.ie, and if you, you can type in my name, James Phelan, um, with a PH, and um, the, the profile is there and all our lab is there as well. We, we've, we've quite a big lab at the moment, past and present labs. My, my, my past lab uh, was the Department of Surgery, so you can, you can look up the Department of Surgery for, for our past for my past research and the lab's past research and then my current lab is the is the tb immunology group in um, trinity college as well um but uh okay. it's it's a very it's a very novel area at the moment and a lot of people don't understand what's going on but it's uh it's it's getting more exciting day by day well thank you for coming i, I wanted to put this one one or two questions back in i forgot to ask you during a a cell's lifetime you know in our body how many mitochondria are in a cell? Just, I know, ballpark, it depends on the cell. And how often are they dividing and forming new mitochondria? And does that happen only when the cell, you know, divides itself? Or do they divide independently and, you know, change numbers? How many? So I suppose your first question was how many mitochondria in the cell? I suppose that changes, that literally can change from cell to cell in the same person, really. It, that can literally change from cell to cell, you know, to be honest A with you. Ballpark, ballpark. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't actually, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 20, it could go up to hundred, you know, depending on the, the metabolic needs of the cell, for example. So if a cell is infected, it's going to need a lot more energy. It, for example, if it was infected with a pathogen, it would need a lot more reactive oxygen species to potentially kill that pathogen. 
and reactive oxygen species is produced for the mitochondria. So it's going to lead to a lot more mitochondria. It depends on the stress of the cell and the microenvironment of the cell, really, you know, for how many. But are the mitochondria dividing independently of the cell itself, or they only divide when the cell divides? Um, no, no, the mitochondria actually divide, yeah, through fission and fusion events. So, for example, if I mentioned if a mitochondria gets damaged, what can happen is that the mitochondria can um, undergo fission and they can actually divide. Um, and then that gets rid of the, a defective. One of those mitochondria are defective because they got, they're after getting rid of the defective part of the mitochondria, if you like. Um, and then that goes under, un, undergoes a process of mitophagy to break down that defective mitochondria. And then that mitochondria that, that was um, remaining can actually get bigger then. Um, so it can. But yeah, they can. So, then they, so they, that, divide, they divide independently of the cell dividing. So the cell doesn't have to divide for the mitochondria to keep proliferating, right? No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then if there's a lot of mitochondria, um, they can actually fuse back again as well. Yeah. Oh, really? They can fuse back into larger ones? Yeah, it can fuse back into larger ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So when they are damaged and they go to a glycolysis preferred path, um, do they stop dividing? Do they divide? If they divide, do they create more damaged ones? Like, how does I would hypothesize, yeah, I would hypothesize that they divide more, if any, because if they are, if they are damaged, they're going to need to get rid of the components within their DNA that are actually damaged. So they're going to undergo a lot more uh, fission uh, in order to do that, to get rid of those defective mitochondria, um, you know. But wouldn't this predispose the cell to autophagy? I'm sorry, apoptosis, because I would think the cell would have a monitoring system that says, you know, hmm, we're, we're getting a proliferation of mitochondria here and we're getting all yeah, these yeah. Uh, molecules off of them that appear to show that they're damaged. It may be time to, like, you know, kill myself here with apoptosis or... Yeah, 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 absolutely. Super questions. The, absolutely, because there's a... I think we talked about fine balance, so... And this is the, the mitochondrial's fine balance, so... If there's too much going on and there's and the cell is burdened by too much stress and too much defective mitochondria, it does tip into the side of apoptosis. Absolutely. Um, so this is um, so these processes of fission and fusion these are these are happening prior to apoptosis. So if, if a cell does get burdened, um, it, it, it triggers apoptosis. Absolutely. This is mitochondrial um, mediated as well. Is there anyone studying the dynamics of the mitochondria in, in normal versus, uh, you know, infected cells? Um, our lab have actually started looking at, absolutely, yeah. Um, I did mitochondrial work myself in the context of cancer, and we do see changes, even from that initial Barrett's esophagus sequence to esophageal cancer. We published papers in the past looking at the different expression of different proteins um, particularly DNA, and we looked at mitochondrial DNA, and we found that there were changes in mitochondrial DNA um, happening across this as, as they progressed the cancer. And we found that these DNA um, or these alterations in DNA were actually associated with alterations in mitochondrial membrane potential in the mitochondria, which are actually linked to the production of ROS and through different pro-inflammatory markers as well. So they are. So very much so, they do have profound effects. Mitochondrial alterations in mitochondrial function have profound effects down, downstream, certainly down as far as affecting uh, the cell from a kind of a 
an inflammatory flux point of view, if you know what I mean, like from, for the, in terms of how it produces cytokines. And these cytokines more than likely also affect bystander cells as well. You know? Okay. Well, excellent. Well, very good. Well, James, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. And thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.